Welcome to the ASHG Trainee Paper Spotlight Podcast. I'm Lucia Hindorf, and along with my co-host, Andrew Marderstein, we'll be bringing you the science and the stories behind outstanding papers written by ASHG trainee members. You can find these papers or nominate your own paper on the ASHG website at ashg.org by searching for Trainee Paper Spotlight. Today's episode features a paper by Kelsey Dawes, who published a paper called Refinement of CG0557-5921 Demethylation Response in Nascent Smoking in the journal Clinical Epigenetics in 2020. Kelsey is a third-year graduate student at the University of Iowa and an intern at Behavioral Diagnostics, a company that was a spinoff of the academic lab in which she works. This episode touches on her research to find DNA methylation biomarkers that are indicators of smoking in adolescence. Her study was one of several that she's done across different diseases. You'll also hear about her training in entrepreneurship and advice for like-minded trainees. And now, I'll let my co-host Andrew take it away. Hi, Kelsey. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, of course. So I am currently a third-year graduate student at the University of Iowa, and I'm also um, an intern at Behavioral Diagnostics. And so I live in, in Iowa, and I actually have uh, two children, and so I am a, a very busy woman, to say the least. <laughs> what is Behavioral Diagnostics? Um, So Behavioral Diagnostics was our first spinoff company from our academic lab. And so, and actually the company who owns the technology that was in my paper, that was um, for the trainee spotlight for ASHG. How are you balancing academia and industry right now? Being a staff scientist, being a PhD student, being a mom too, it's a lot. It is, yes. Yeah. So, well, I'm not currently a staff scientist yet. I'm actually just a molecular diagnostic intern is my my title at, at uh, BD for short. Um, and so thankfully, uh, my position in industry and in academia, they really overlap. So my jobs are very, very similar. Um, and the research is also exactly the same, which which really helps. Um, balancing the, the children part can be a little bit more difficult. But um, on the days where I just need to be in the lab a little bit later, um, they actually have their own lab space, so they have a couch and they have a TV and they get snacks and they are kind of like all set. So, and, and what type of research do you do? So I really focus on clinical epigenetics, uh, DNA methylation specifically. So um, we try to find a clinically relevant biomarkers um, for DNA methylation biomarkers, and then we implement them and apply them to the clinic and also industry sectors as well. How do you get interested in this area? Um, honestly, it kind of just fell into my lap. So um, I joined my lab as an undergrad. And um, at the time, I was actually wanting to go for medical school to be a pathologist. Um, but when I was here, I just fell in love with the research and actually applying research to the clinic. And when I was in the clinic and I was getting some of my training in the labs there, um, I kind of realized that mentally my head was still back at the lab. Um, and I didn't necessarily want to go through the workflow of the clinic 
um, I actually wanted to discover new things. And so I just kind of fell in love with my lab and I've been here ever since. Is this the same institution and lab for undergrad and grad school? Yep. Yep, absolutely. So um, I actually only went to grad school here um, because I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my PhD um, and I knew what lab I wanted to be in. So I didn't choose a program like a lot of graduate students do. Um, I chose my lab first and then any other program didn't necessarily matter to me because um, it, I mean, is a step forward at that point. Right. And what have been your thoughts of staying at the same institution for an undergrad and grad school? Does it, were you able to sort of extend your research or have you branched off in new directions? Curious on your perspective. Um, for me, since I stayed in my same lab, um, I just really expanded upon the research that I was already doing. Um, so when I was an undergrad, I already had one and working on my second first author publication and then when I went into grad school, I still kind of continued on with those projects, which was looking at um, biomarkers for substance use. But then I branched off onto my own and I'm working on my thesis project is for diabetes, actually. And so but it's the same tools and concepts just being applied to a different phenotype, really. So it was really an expansion. But the great thing about being in the same institution is that um, in academia, we need to have connections. That's what it's all about. And so I already started a lot of those connections and I've only just expanded exponentially a lot of those, not just in academia, but in industry and also in the clinic as well, which is important for my field. Right. And so was this in grad school when you published this paper, Refinement of CGO5575921 Demethylation Response in Nascent Smoking and Clinical Epigenetics? Yes. Yep. That was during my first semester, I think, is when I submitted that. Yep. Right. So this was a super interesting study, which just came out last year, which we wanted to highlight on the training paper spotlight. So it's about a methylation marker for determining smoking status. And so can you tell me about the study and, and how this project really came together? Yeah, Chris. So um, when I first actually joined the lab, we were already looking at CGO55 for short um, as a smoking status biomarker in adults. Um, but CGO55, as with any DNA methylation biomarker that's sensitive to um, environmental exposures, is that it's really a time and dose dependent. And so basically the longer that you've been smoking and the more that you've been smoking, then the more demethylated CGO55 will be. Um, so, but then the question was, well, can we use this in adolescents then when they first start smoking? Because that could be um, an issue um, in that demographic. And so, the first, my first two papers um, actually was exploring that idea. And this particular paper was showing that not only, yes, I can use it as a biomarker, but we can also use um, how demethylated CGO55 is um, to how much that they've been smoking. All right. All right. So, so overall, do you think there are more epigenetic markers like this? Yes. So we have quite a few biomarkers also in my lab, not just CGO55, but um, so for example, we have um, a panel for alcohol consumption. I'm working on one for diabetes and we also have them for cardiovascular disease. Um, and there's tons of them in the clinic already for an um, oncology. Um, but CGO55, I must admit, is the most beautiful biomarker that I have seen and is made trying to uh, develop others a little more 
challenging and frustrating on my end. Because um, CGO 5.5, it's, it's very linear. It's very easy to interpret. Um, you don't have to correct it for any underlying genetics. Um, it, is, it is a beautiful biomarker. <laughs> yeah, and so what's the process of developing these biomarkers? Um, so the first step would be, of course, biomarker discovery. And so with DNA methylation, it's usually like with an array. And then once you kind of like refined your marker set, then you need to generalize it to other ethnicities and age groups. And you also really need to make sure that it's not influenced heavily by genetic variation, which we are finding where kind of the field is just not kind of moving into. Um, and so then kind of like after that is done, what I truly believe is that the array is not feasible to use in the clinic, nor really should it be. There's a lot of issues with using the array. So then you need to take the methodology and you need to transform it. So such as what my lab uses is a methylation sensitive drop a digital PCR, which is more sensitive and more accurate and it doesn't um, have to go against a reference standard. And so there's other methodologies as well, such as bisulfite seek and some of these things, but you just really need to make sure that it can be feasible to be implemented into the clinic or whatever sector that you want that biomarker to be used for. So you, you find a biomarker and you think it's significant to some disease or what you found in the paper is this CG055 is relevant for smoking uh, in terms of dose and whatever else you're looking at. Then how do you actually get this toward the clinic in terms of clinically validating it um, and going towards that process? Essentially, it becomes eventually a regulatory process, but have you thought about sort of making those type of advances? Of course. So one of the things that um, I've really learned in more of like my entrepreneurship training is that when you're trying to implement any of your research into the clinic, the first thing that you really need to ask yourself is what is the unmet need in the clinic that your product would be um, serving? And so that's really going straight to the clinic, straight to the MDs and being like, what's the problem? Like, what exactly is a problem? And then can my product, or in this case, can my biomarker solve that problem for you? Um, either better than the current method, cheaper than the current method, um, or be in addition to your method for like stratifying patients um, that might be like at the borderline, if that makes sense. Um, and so then once you really know what that need is, um, then you can kind of go from there. And so, yes, you need to be able to get FDA approval and some of some of those other things and um, external validation, which usually is done using like an outsourced lab and kind of moving your product that way. And of course, covering it with IP before you start publishing on it. But and then all those regulatory things. Um, but really, the first thing, don't waste your time unless you already know what the clinical need is and that your product can um, actually solve that and that the physicians want to use it and that they will use it. That's really, or life insurance companies or health insurance companies, whichever one. You mentioned entrepreneurial training. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So um, my PI is actually the CEO and founder of two biotech companies now, and then I'll actually be starting our third. And so in my program, um, I'm not really getting the training for industry and of how to actually implement these things into the clinic. So for that reason, I know there's a, a gap in my knowledge. And so 
Um, here at the U, we actually have an entrepreneurship training center. And so I'm taking classes there. And they also have some accelerator programs for your company where you work alongside business mentors that really help train you and get you started in, in those type of things. So I've participated in a, in a lot of those programs and I'm taking classes for like marketing and financial issues when it comes to your startup company. So uh, I, as a, as a postdoc right now, I just graduated as a PhD student. Um, I know myself, a lot of peers are interested in entrepreneurship. They might want to think about commercializing their own research. Um, what do you think are the best ways to start doing that? Cause I think it's kind of like a gray area. Like how do I, how do I commercialize my research? So uh, if you're in a lab, of course, you need to more work with your PI. Um, and so it's, unfortunately, it's really the environment that you're in. And academia is, is changing, but academia is still kind of really hesitant about um, commercializing research and like the business of science. They still kind of see it as that you're a sellout. And so um, know that there are some potential consequences for like social things like within your your program but um aside from that the first step would really to make sure that can you patent it can you get ip for it if you've already published on it or if you have um done like a conference you went to a conference and you presented it then you can't patent it anymore so if you can't cover it with like intellectual property then you probably won't be able to commercialize it uh, with that being said, if you can and you can still patent it and cover it, then the next step would be going to your um, transfer, your tech transfer office at the university. Um, because if you are using the research that you've done at the university, then they actually own that IP and that tech. You don't. But if you go through them, then you can use that technology and kind of commercialize it. So that'd be really the first steps is covering the IP and going to your university tech transfer office. Absolutely. Yeah, so I think I'm a big proponent of uh, PhD students, postdocs, being able to not just go into academia, being able to choose an entrepreneurial path like you did, go to you know pharmaceutical nonprofit. There's a lot of different paths besides academia. Um, can you talk a little bit more about sort of maybe some of the social pressures that maybe you felt as you embarked on sort of a different journey than the traditional academic route? Of course, because um, this has actually still been an issue for me. Um, thankfully, in my lab, this is just how my lab works. And so I'm kind of at home here. But um, when we have like journal club, for example, and people are presenting on new technologies that could change this or this, you know, I'll ask the questions like, well, who's going to pay for that? How is that actually better than the current technology that's being used? Well, that seems uh, that tech seems a little too complicated, and it doesn't really seem like it would MDs would be able to interpret it very well. Um, so, can you please explain to me how like to overcome some of those challenges? And I'll ask some of these more practical and logical questions. And um, professors will directly tell me we're worried about the science. We're not worried about you know any of those other things. And when your mind thinks this way. Instead of just worried about the science, the science is extremely important. Do not get me wrong. The science has to be right. It has to be accurate. And that is completely important. But 
if you want to actually commercialize it, you want to actually change medicine, you want to change patient outcomes. These are things that you have to think about early in the beginning so that then you can tailor your product, tailor your research for the clinic, for the industry, so that we can actually get past what we call the valley of death and we can actually change medicine. And But the problem, though, is that people don't like to talk about money. People don't like to talk about that science is not just science. It's also a business. And unfortunately, that's just the way that the world works. And so when you bring that to light, then people more see you as a sellout. And that's kind of more like where that, the social ramifications kind of come in, especially when we're not trained that way in PhD programs. The PIs are not trained that way. And so they can kind of take it as like a blow to the ego also a little bit, if that makes sense. I appreciate the perspective. Um, since we're running out of time, I'm just going to ask, what do you think is the future of epigenetics in studying human behavior, smoking, disease, um, whether on the academic route, the, the industry or the entrepreneurial route? Um, honestly, I believe that acutely epigenetics will really be able to bring to light the nature versus nurture debate and how it's not just our genetics and it's not just our environment. It is really how they're interacting together and that complex interplay between them. And so it will really be able to better understand disease. And that is really the beauty of epigenetics. That's what I fell in love with. Um, however, I also believe that it is a tool and just like everything else, it will come and it will go and something else is going to come in. And so what we, so we need to really harness epigenetics while it's here, learn all that we can from it, and use that to apply it to the next steps in science and in technology. All right. Thank you, Kelsey. This is the episode of Training Paper Spotlight. And thank you for joining us.